0: What's it like working with coronavirus and other deadly biohazards? The future in the fight against COVID 19, a glimmer of hope, and using light to control genetic expression. Join me in this episode for a thrilling look into the life of a scientist on the front lines during this pandemic, as well as for advice for young scientists and professionals alike. This is Goggles Off. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Goggles Off. Today, today, I'm joined by Dr. Eric Valois. Eric, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Brandon. How are you? Fantastic. Uh, Eric, you received your PhD in Biochemistry and Molecular Biology from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Um, can you speak to that a little bit? What did you study during your uh, doctorate studies?
1: So, I was advised by Dr. Herb Waite. Uh, who is a forefront expert in biomimetic materials and marine adhesion. So most of my work focused on looking at the muscle byssus, and the byssus is that little thing that you've probably seen if you've been to the beach. It's what anchors the muscle to the actual rock. It looks looks like a little thread. Um, So I studied, you know, how those threads uh, stay intact and I, I studied how those things actually adhere to the rocks themselves.
0: Gotcha. Very cool. Um, we're not actually going to talk about that a lot today, but I did want to, you know, since it is really cool research in itself, I wanted to kind of show that and highlight the diversity um, of science and, you know, what a scientist does. Uh, but today, our subject of conversation is a little bit more relevant today's times, which is the coronavirus and your recent work to try to develop a orthogonal or new method of testing, improving upon the, pre, uh, the current standard used method of testing um so you know coronavirus represents an unprecedented health crisis you know two million cases in the united states uh roughly 110,000 deaths uh because of this uh the government is putting a whole bunch of you know social distancing orders in place um and it's really hard to say with certainty how effective uh this social distancing and these measures are they for one cause a huge uh, social and economic strain on the economy, and we really don't know how well they're working. And that's partly because widespread testing is so difficult uh, to to achieve and it's, it's a logistical problem. Uh, I know for a fact that when this all kind of broke out, I came down with the sickness and I had all the symptoms of coronavirus. And I remember uh, calling the hospital and inquiring, hey, I want to get a test, this and that. And it's Kaiser Permanente, so huge hospital, like very, very well-renowned. Um, However, they told me they don't have any tests and they can't do anything for me. And I just kind of had to ride it out, especially because I'm not one of these at-risk characters. And so making a new test or improving upon the current testing procedures is critical. Um, And I was wondering if you could describe this process a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that
1: you're absolutely right that that widespread testing was a huge, huge systemic problem early on during the coronavirus. the explosion of cases that we saw back in February and March was astronomical and it hit the supply chains extremely hard and kind of depleted all the resources that we had. So the current gold standard put forward by the CDC is a technique known as RT-qPCR, which stands for Real Time Quantitative polymerase Chain Reaction, um, which is kind of how you convert RNA into dna and then quantify how much of that is there so you can really figure out how much virus a person has um kind of circulating in the back of their throat so the the really big issue there is that process was developed to be one step um, where it's this solution that you can buy off the shelf and run all these tests the problem was the CDC put forward a very limited number of suppliers that they approved. And so all the hospitals went to the same suppliers to buy this this mix of, of reagents. And so, you know, these suppliers sold out extremely quickly. Uh, and then there was a backlog for months. And so the CDC approved tests really were, were limited in number. So they were reserved for the people, A, most at risk and B, that were actually presenting symptoms of, like, really severe cases. Mm. So our goal uh, here at UCSB, and this was a collaborative effort between Ken Cossack, Dr. Ken Cossack, Dr. Max Wilson, um, uh, Dr. Diego acosta Alvar, and Dr. Carolina Arias. Uh, You know, we, we met and we decided that our goal was to create a test that could circumvent the classic supply chains. So... In doing so, it opened up testing to you know much broader populations because you didn't rely on a single supplier to give you reagents. Um, our test is very similar to uh, the CDC's based test, which is called the TACMAN. Uh, our test is an RT PCR method followed by fluorescence readout that is generated by a CRISPR enzyme and you know many people have heard about CRISPR. It's the genetic or genome editing uh, protein that allows us to do a lot of really interesting things. So the the fundamental way that our test works is we harvest RNA from you know the patients. Um, we take that RNA, we reverse transcribe it, which is the RT part of the qPCR. We reverse transcribe it from RNA into DNA. We amplify that DNA. And then we feed it to this CAS CASA uh, 13 molecule, which will then transcribe it again back into RNA, cleave that RNA, and you get a fluorescent signal. So our readout is is fluorescence. So really all you need to get you know a result being positive or negative is a blue LED. Because if you you know shine a blue LED on this tube, it'll either fluoresce if you're positive or it won't fluoresce if you're negative. So it's kind of the fundamentals of, of our test and what we went to go, go about. Very cool. And uh, kind of platforming off what
0: you said, really, the ways your test is superior or uh, makes improvements on the current issues regarding the gold standard That's you know, of RT-QPCR um, would be it addresses one, the availability of the resources, like you said, uh, two, uh, the availability of equipment uh, because the equipment used in RT-QPCR... Often really expensive, like a commercial thermocycler. I looked it up on BioRad and could find one for like five thousand dollars. And then a spectrofluorimeter is thirty, th- thirty plus, thirty thousand dollars. Yeah. So I mean, that's a lot of money. However, the stuff that you guys were using in the lab, uh, this, little, this little mini thermocycler that I found right there on Thermo Fisher for five hundred dollars, um, and then also that that fluorimeter you're talking about is this little actual cardboard box that costs twenty eight dollars. Um, so roughly, you know. More than a tenfold decrease in the price, and that opens up, you know, different niches. Now, maybe smaller labs can actually start doing testing, or you know, even even do-it-yourself scientists at home can even start uh, doing testing. So, really broadens the amount of people that can administer these tests.
1: Yeah, I think it's been really phenomenal to see kind of how the industry has responded to to demands in reagents. Um, no free ad reads, but here we go. Uh, New England Bio is where we're buying all of our things, most of our reagents, I should say and New England BioLabs is a massive corp, you know company uh, out in Massachusetts but we're ordering off the shelf items we're not ordering anything customizable we didn't sign any you know contracts we didn't negotiate any novel prices it's just what they had available which means that anyone else has the same resources that we had available um, and they ship usually in you know 2 to 3 days so all of the resources that we need are coming rapidly, which is phenomenal and it's a great comparison to um, what we were experiencing early on in coronavirus testing. And like you mentioned, yeah, the the cardboard box that we use uh, was designed by a company called MiniPCR. And MiniPCR is a, a, I believe they were founded by a bunch of MIT grads, but their whole goal uh, was to bring science to elementary and middle school classrooms. So that's, they d- developed this cardboard box that would generate fluorescent signals. They generated cheap thermocyclers that you mentioned, you know, were you know about five to $700 depending on the model that you bought. But again, they're able to generate large scale, cheap, effective equipment that could be rolled out into any classroom. So we figured that this would be a great way to kind of utilize equipment that is like you mentioned orthogonal to the standard standard methods
0: yeah very cool and you, you mentioned it's you know being effective and it really is just as effective as the the current gold standard set out by the cdc which is the RTqPCR, like we talked about um and achieving it with just a much lower cost and an ease of use and then also touching back to what you said um you know this this could be something that all you really need is an LED you know blue light to light up and it gives you your positive result and so this really represents a point-of-care solution uh, to medical di- diagnostics right so as opposed to c- the current method where you go into the hospital the doctor sees that you're sick orders a few tests um, and then you, you wait for the lab to get those test results back to you it usually takes like six days or so um, point-of-care is really this this idea that you go to the, the doctor and right there at the point of care where the doctor is seeing you they do some sort of you know quick little test right there, get the result right there, and can tell you, do you have coronavirus or do you have this infection or not? And w- with regards to medical diagnosis, right, time of diagnosis is, is so key, right? because then that can inform the decisions of public health officials and also of an individual themselves as to how they should go about themselves in their day. Um, so it just is really interesting kind of an advancement in um, the medical di- diagnostic field.
1: It is, and I think that's the ultimate goal is getting to that that point of care testing um, you know with that being said I think the little caveat that we have right now is our fluorescence readouts are really only about eight tests um, you know in that little cardboard box we just would need to do a little bit of engineering to make a bigger box but that's kind of a trivial task to any you know mechanical engineer um, this test that we're doing now you know the crest method as we we call it, um, has been scaled pretty largely, and we're running about 150 tests to 200 tests a day. So as you mentioned, point of care is is pretty important to us. And, you know, at 200 tests a day, we're getting results in 24 hours. So this is something that's easily handleable by a university medical center for student testing or, you know, small hospitals in rural areas. Um, it's definitely something that can help impact Point of care in smaller urban areas,
0: and then uh, you mentioned CREST just to, to break down that uh, acronym for people. That stands for Cast Thirteen Base Rugged Equitable Scalable Testing. Um, so, kind of exactly what it sounds like. The technology is based off the Cast Thirteen proteins, like we talked about earlier. It's rugged, meaning a lot of people can do it. And it's it's able to be do done in an, in a diverse array of conditions. Equitable to. Uh, equitable in results to the current gold standard RT-qPCR and scalable, meaning that you can scale it up uh, as you wish. Um,
1: I think the scalability is the big, like the big one here. Hmm. Uh, you know, while all the, the the letters of the acronym are important, the kind of crux of of any diagnostic testing is your ability to generate a signal, right, a positive or a negative signal. Uh, in our case the signal is generated by this Cas13 protein, which is that CRISPR protein. Um, and we've been able to generate, you know, hundreds of thousands of tests worth of Cas13 in about four days. So we can generate huge amounts of signal producing Cas13, um, which is also really cool. And just getting back to the the rugged part of things, uh, the thermocyclers we use are actually capable of being battery operated. Yeah. So in theory, you can run this... Anywhere you don't need your standard power supplies, which is kind of cool.
0: That is really cool, kind of like field laboratory di- diagnostics right there in your pocket. That's pretty, that's really cool.
1: Yeah, it's, it's actually getting to that point the field deployability. We've actually sent 200 tests to Ecuador, mm. uh, which are being used to test native populations in, in the jungle down there. That's really cool. So all these people are using battery-operated detection mechanisms and battery-operated uh, thermocyclers, which wow. is kind of fun. So we're awaiting those results. We haven't seen them yet, but I'm hoping that we can get this and maybe we can update listeners at some other point. That's
0: very cool. It kind of reminds me of uh, something I was researching in undergrad, but it was uh, during the West Nile Ebola outbreak. Uh, researchers were trying to pin pin down where the Ebola virus was coming from and originating from, and there's differences in uh, the viruses. Genetics based off where it originated from, and so they they unleash these like these brand new kind of little pocket uh, DNA sequencer machines that they would actually you know go out in the field and and take a swab of someone's DNA, plug that little little pocket DNA sequencer into a computer, and get a get a result, and then be able to actually pinpoint what regions of Africa they actually had to shut down at that time. Um, just really cool this idea of of field deployable scientists. It makes me kind of feel like. Less of a science nerd in the lab, and maybe someday I'll be like an action hero, you know, after deployed in the field.
1: I mean, it is kind of cool, right? Like how far science has really come, and kind of getting back on topic to this the coronavirus. We've actually, not we personally, our lab, but the, the science community as a we, has actually been able to do that with this coronavirus, um, where they've been able to trace genetic lineages from continent to continent. So we know, for instance, that the genetic strains of the coronavirus that hit Washington and California originated, uh, in Asia where the genetic strains of coronavirus that, that hit New York originated in Europe. So we could actually track, you know, how the virus spread from East to West and then West to East. Mm. So kind of an interesting like thing. It's kind of amazing. And like you said, yeah, field deployability would be, I think that's every scientist's dream, Mm -hmm. you know, is getting out there and doing something that's hands-on muggy and kind of gross at times, but I think fun in the end. It's like nobody, uh, I shouldn't say nobody, but like being in a lab nonstop all the time can be grueling. So it's always kind of fun to think and dream that your science can be applicable on the ground.
0: Yeah, it's very cool, very cool stuff. Um, what is it like working with you know such a pathogenic virus on a you know day to day basis? Like, what kind of precautions did you have to take? Was it ever you know kind of scary?
1: Um, yeah, I think I'd be lying if I said that there wasn't some. Innate or intrinsic fear. I think working with pathogenic materials, if you're not somewhat afraid of what you're working with, then you're bound to make mistakes. You know, if you're nonchalant and careless, that's when people get get hurt. Um, With that being said, you know the team that I'm working with has put in great standard operating operating procedures to make sure that there are absolutely um, minimal risk of exposure to a live virus. So I can kind of walk you through that if you want, I can tell you about yeah, that.
0: I'm, yeah, I'm super interested. How, how, how does one prevent themselves from getting sick from the, the thing that they're studying at the lab bench?
1: Yeah, so the the big one is is utilizing PPE. And that, that acronym, um, personal protective equipment, has been all over the news. You know, we hear about it all the time, especially with the shortages. But for us, the PPE is an N95 respirator uh, full-face goggles, so not a face shield, but actually sealable goggles, uh, a barrier lab coat, which is impenetrable to, to fluids, uh, and then we double glove with uh, nitrile gloves. Uh, all of our work is done in a device called a biosafety cabinet. Uh, biosafety cabinets are, are different from your classic, like, chemistry hood that you see in, you know, undergrad biology and stuff like that. Um, In the sense that the flow is all into the hood and then it's filtered through two um, HEPA filters which are designed to capture any biological material. So the biggest risk of infection is actually transporting the samples from sample collection site to the lab. Once they're in the lab, they're immediately deactivated. Um, we essentially bake them, mm. um, which will rupture the, the virus capsid and render them, you know inactive. But like I said, it's transmit or transporting them from collection site to, to processing site. With that being said, uh, the samples are minimally touched once they're collected. You know, they're placed in individual tubes. Um, those tubes go into a rack, which is sealed in a, um, essentially a biological transport, uh, cooler, and it's not reopened until it is actually in the hood itself. Hmm. So, you know, like I said, there's, there's always a little bit of fear, like you do your best to make sure that you have followed your PPE and standard operating procedures. But, um, I don't know, we've, we've nailed it down pretty well. So um, the other thing, too, I guess the really important thing here is we always are working in two man teams. So that way, you know, the cooler comes in to our, our biosafety level two uh, facility. It goes into the hood. There's one person that's actually handling the samples, their arms never leave the hood. The second person is reading and recording numbers. And so, like, let's say that I'm in, working in the hood at the time, I'll pull a tube out and it'll say sample one, 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 right? I'll read off that sample, my partner will repeat it, it'll get logged, and then it immediately gets activated. So if there were any sort of problem, there's always two people there to deal with with the issue. Mm. So that way we never lose track of samples, we never have problems. Um, it's, it makes handling samples like that much more comfortable to know that you're A, not working alone, and B, you have someone there to like, kind of reinforce what you're doing. Has there
0: been any issues? Has anybody from your lab gotten sick during the course of this research?
1: No, no, actually. Um, no one's gotten sick, which has been great. Uh, we had one random case of bronchitis, yep. but yeah, tested twice for coronavirus, both times negative, which is kind of crazy. But they yeah, for some reason, ended up with bronchitis, <laughs> which is just like horrible luck, yeah. I guess, <laughs> to get a respiratory infection in the time of coronavirus. It's not coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, no one has actually contracted coronavirus. Um, like I said, we we have been immensely careful.
0: That's awesome. And it totally, I mean, I didn't even think about it, but it makes sense to have one person scribing down everything that you're you're saying and logging it because, I mean, there's no way you could be efficiently cleaning and scrubbing your gloves from working with the virus and then go log into your notebook without kind of contaminating something.
1: Yeah. I, I think the other thing that's really important about that is like once the, the flow hood or the, the flow of, of air in these hoods is very delicate. Um, you know, you're about hundred cubic feet a minute, which sounds like a lot, but it's not, uh, especially when your hood is six feet wide. Um, so once your hands go into the hood, you want to minimize the number of times that they come out. So, you know, you'll you'll be sitting in the hood for two hours with your hands in the hood the entire time. And so you wanna make sure that that person that's your support is, you know, helping. Like if you need a new set of pipette tips, like they grab them, you don't exit the hood. Um, if you need, you know, ethanol to like clean your gloves, they'll supply it for you. If they need new buffers and new agents, they'll be the one to grab them. So that way you're, you don't disrupt the flow of oxygen, and you minimize the uh, the number of times that you break that airflow. Mm. So it helps also not just like reiterate what you're doing, but it helps actually improve the safety of your operation.
0: Um, does it get
1: tiring to hold your hands
0: like that in the hood for an extended period of time?
1: Yeah, it it, it can. Um, you know, two hours is fine. The longest day that we had was about nine and a half hours in the hood, mm. um, and that was pretty grueling, but. You know, all in all, we've all done this. Anyone who does like cell culture can tell you uh, it's not the most exciting thing to be in the hood, but it's not overly tiresome. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think if I had to do it alone, that would be brutal <laughs> right, and probably very unsafe from from the way you're just. Yeah, it. Yeah, 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 exactly. But I, you know, it's not too bad. Like,
0: it's it is what it is okay well and uh how do you feel about you know traditionally you know you did the muscle foot protein stuff and then in max wilson's lab we haven't talked about it yet but you did a lot of kind of protein investigations but kind of what's it are, are you enjoying this excited phase and you know and working kind of uh, pathogens or would you
1: like to get back to kind of more relaxed uh work um it's been exciting it's been an exciting opportunity you know in in dr wade's group i didn't do a whole lot of molecular biology um and when i talk about molecular biology i mean really handling genetic material uh rna dna um so for me this has been a not only an an opportunity to give back to the community that got me through my phd but it's been an opportunity to learn a lot about you know molecular bio um from you know cloning caster team to harvesting RNA DNA to doing RTQ like it's been a really awesome opportunity and I'm just happy to have a job at the time mm. um, but yeah I, I am looking forward to the time that I can return to work that is a little bit more up my alley but I don't know I'm happy to do what I'm doing for now so we'll chug along until we can make significant progress and hopefully help our community return to some sort of normalcy
0: very cool. And then, kind of touching off that, how do you feel about this idea of being a scientist and kind of you know all, getting a diverse project every once in a while or at a at a you know switch in your life or the ability to
1: kind of branch out and do multiple things at once? What does that mean to you? Yeah, for me, I think it's ultra important. Um, I value learning new techniques and new skills. The one caveat to that is there's always a steep learning curve. Um, you know, education is kind of a pyramid. If you want to take a look at it, where you start at the bottom and you kind of cast this wide net of knowledge where you're in elementary school, you're learning everything. You're learning how to read, how to write, how what numbers are and you know, basic geography. As you kind of progress through your education, that focus narrows. You know, high school, you kind of get a little bit more in depth, so your pyramid narrows. You get to college, you pick a major, it narrows even further. And then you, you know, get to your PhD and you're at the top of the pyramid where, you know, a whole lot about one very specific thing. And for me, I think a lot of people kind of fall into that trap where they never to continue to expand their knowledge base. Um, So for me, I, I value kind of learning new things from time to time. But like I said, it's it's a steep learning curve. Because you've got to step outside your comfort zone and, like, really force yourself to learn a new material or new topic. Right. A lot of a lot of drinking coffee and reading articles that you don't really understand. Tons of coffee, time. man. Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. You would not believe.
0: Um, and kind of platforming off that as well, what's it like being, a, you know, a postdoc? You know, now that you've completed your PhD, now you're doing a postdoctorate in Max Wilson's lab. Um, has that been, you know, very similar to the PhD in terms of work input or is it, is it just totally different? Oh, that like
1: it's totally different. It's so much more work. Mm, really? Um, yeah, I, I didn't. I mean, you know, I had somebody a long time ago kind of tell me that like each step you take in your your education career, you not only increase your knowledge, but you increase your work ethic, um, or your workload, I should say. Hopefully, your work ethic to go with it. But um, it's totally true. You know, as a graduate student, you rely really heavily on your advisor to help you with with grant writing, um, with paper writing, uh, with things like that. As a postdoc, it's a really interesting transition because one day you're a grad student, the next day you're a postdoc, you have gained no additional experience, but the demands of you increase exponentially. Mm. You know, you're now expected to write your own grants. You're now expected to like do your own budgeting. You're expected to um, develop multiple projects uh, not just a single project like you do during your, your PhD thesis so it's been a lot of work but at the same time I think it's a really fun challenge mm. like I don't want to discourage any PhD student from giving it a shot because obviously if you went through a PhD you can get through this um, that initial couple of months is just a kind of a shock to your system like you close your PhD and you work immensely on getting your thesis done because if my experience is typical you put off your dissertation writing until like i don't know four months before your graduation date and your committee's sending you emails like hey where's the draft where's the draft and you're like oh i'll have it to you tomorrow and you're up till 3 a.m writing but you know you expect a little bit of downtime if you jump straight into a postdoc there's just no downtime Mm. and that is typical everybody i've interviewed has read it written their thesis in a very
0: short period of time so yeah it's not uncommon to do that
1: i don't know hopefully uh, for all you young phd uh listeners out there start writing early like get it done asap draft your papers in a dissertation form that way all you have to do at the end of your work is just copy and paste your your papers and your dissertation you don't have to stress about writing it and applying for fellowships and applying for jobs and you know you want to be able to enjoy the last few months of your phd definitely yeah great
0: advice you got any for kind of a young scientist someone maybe just starting off maybe an undergraduate or maybe a high schooler looking to get into science
1: yeah I, I got advice for everybody yes. <laughs> I don't know if it's if it's good advice but it's advice that I wish that I would have been given um, I, I think for especially young scientists and we're talking kind of freshmen here freshmen sophomores is get involved early like as early as you can you know most people like graduate students don't want to take on an undergraduate that they are only going to get for three quarters. Um, you know, they want to be able to train you and have you be productive for a couple of years. The easiest way to get a lab position as an undergrad is be available your, uh, freshman year summer. You know, so you come in, you have no classes between your freshman and sophomore year. You get trained every day for three months. So that way your sophomore year, you can hit the ground running. You know, you can manage a project, you know the techniques, you know where all the chemicals are in the lab, you know who to talk to. And that way you can actually be a productive member of your lab rather than being a burden to the grad student that that, uh, you're supposed to be helping. So that's kind of advice for, you know, getting into science. The other advice for graduate or uh, undergrads looking for labs is when you contact these people, make sure that you have done your research. Like don't send them a generic email that says, hi, my name is Brandon Milady and Mm -hmm. I really like stem cells. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get an email back from a chemical engineering professor that's like, yeah, we do chemical synthesis, no stem cells, but like, thanks, you know, um, make sure you tailor each letter to, to each lab that you're applying to do your homework, because it'll go a long, long way. Um, I don't know. You want me to go to grad students? I can do that.
0: Uh, well, I kind of wanted to touch okay. on that. Um, yeah, go. There's been a bunch of uh, undergrads who have kind of approached me, because I was in a research lab, and I had kind of been uh, working, you know, in a lab for some time now. And they had asked me, oh, Brandon, how do I get in a lab? And they would send me those generic emails. they like, hey, I'm thinking of sending this to a professor. And dude, it's like they're brutal. It's like, dude, you just... Or, you know, uh, guy or girl. But it's like, you didn't put in any thought into you know, their research. You you know how many people are doing the same thing every day? Like, you need to read all their work or at least, you know, a, a good chunk of it so you're knowledgeable in what they research and so you can actually engage in a dialogue with this person about the research. And you should probably ask some questions that show competence and a thorough understanding of the material and that you are seeking to advance the material, you know? So don't just ever come at them like, oh, yeah, like, like you said, like, oh, I like stem cells because they're going to tell you to kick rocks. Like, everybody is interested in that right now. And so... They don't have space for you. But if you come at them with, you know, some insightful questions that really show that you're a go-getter and kind of got a good head on your shoulders, then they're much more likely to reach out to you.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Um, But yeah, graduate students, you got any advice for graduate
1: students? Yeah. Grad students. uh, First and second year grad students, you don't know everything. Like I I see a lot of grad students and rotation students, especially who like come into a lab and feel like they're going to cure cancer. And it's like, there's a reason that these really hard questions haven't been answered yet. It's because they're hard. Like you don't know what you're doing when you're a first year you fumble around and granted there's always exceptions. There's always people that are phenomenal, but I would say 90% of first and second years fumble. They take on tasks that are way too large for their talents or skill sets. Um, And then they, they get bogged down, you know, they, they struggle, they get discouraged. And that's just kind of this bad cycle as a first and second year, you need to do two things. You need to pair yourself with an advanced grad student or postdoc and just get knowledge, like learn techniques, learn data interpretation, learn how to manage experiments, design appropriate controls, et cetera. And then two, you need to work on side projects that are just seem stupidly easy. Like, you need to have a win every day, whether that's just, like, have a gel that looks phenomenal or do a Western blot that works or, like, run a, a QPCR that, that shows you curves that you expected. Like, if you can get those wins and those successes, no matter how small, early, they'll build into something eventually. You know, they will build into a nice story or, or culminate in a nice small paper. And, like, if you can get one of those out in your first... Or second year, that's great. Like you don't need to hit the home run that's cell science or nature. Like you just need to get something small accomplished early to set your foundation. Mm -hmm. And I think I was guilty of that for sure. Like I came in to Herb's group and was like, I have this brilliant idea of solving how the muscle business attaches to the muscle plaque. And the business thread attaches to the plaque. And Herb was like, "Yeah, that sounds phenomenal. No one's been able to do it." I was like, "Perfect, I'm gonna do it." Herb's been working on this problem since he was at Duke back in the 70s. Mm. If like Herb can't figure it out, believe me, there's nothing that I'm gonna do as a first year that's gonna like <laughs> that's gonna do it. And I don't know. It's just it never worked out for me because I was too ambitious. Like I bit off more than I can chew, and I didn't have the skill set necessary. And I think a lot of first year grad students suffered from that problem.
0: Mm. I'll
1: definitely try to heed that <laughs>
0: advice because, you know, I'm going going to apply to graduate programs pretty soon. So that, that section was a lot for me. Um, I kind of want to touch on how did you first get into, into science? Were you always
1: scientifically inclined? Uh, is there something that kind of triggered that? I don't know if there was one, like, defining event, to be honest with you. Uh, I always found science interesting. You know, to to be honest with you, I was more math oriented in high school um was not great at biology in in high school and then i i got to college and really thought i was going the med school route like that was kind of what i had geared myself towards hence the kind of undergrad degree that i pursued um but i found myself being more and more attracted to the science, you know, the experiments in, in bio labs and chem labs and things like that. And when it came time to write essays for the MCAT, I had a really big problem. Like I couldn't explain why I wanted to go to med school other than I thought it was like, I don't know, medicine sounds interesting kind of mm. thing. Mm. Um, and so that was really kind of eye opening for me as a, as a junior in college was like, if you can't explain why you want to do something, then you probably shouldn't be doing it. Right. For the rest of your life. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyways, that was kind of, you know, I I found out that like that's medicine wasn't for me. And so I started thinking about what I really wanted to do. And science was always intriguing and interesting. Like the ability to work on cutting edge things that changed rapidly. I found really cool. Like I wanted to be on the forefront of whatever was coming. Um, on top of that you know to make a long story long uh when i was going through undergrad uh obama entered his first term and they dumped a bunch of money into the brain initiative where they wanted to map the you know all neuronal connections in the human brain which sounded crazy but they dumped a ton of money into it and uc davis founded the mind institute which was like this huge institute attached to the uc davis medical school that like opened up a ton of neuroscience research and so i got really involved in neuroscience research and loved it and that kind of just like sparked my i don't know furthering interest in science like kind of the dedication that i wanted to spend to to doing it as a as a lifelong career
0: very cool so generally just find it interesting and cool um what else, what else are you into? You got any hobbies, anything you like to do? Yeah, sports. Big sports guy. <laughs> uh, what What sports <laughs> you do? Big sports doing? guy.
1: Uh, I play ice hockey, which is very uncommon mm. growing up in California. Um, played a ton of ice hockey. I love lacrosse, and then I surf, obviously.
0: How does one even get into ice hockey in California? It seems...
1: Yeah. Uh, it seems not, not common, and it isn't. Uh, when I was nine... I went to a birthday party at an ice rink and loved <laughs> skating and that kind of just blossomed into this, I don't know, this like obsession with skating. Mm. So yeah, played all over the states, played in Canada, um, just loved it. Still skate three or four times a week, beats going to the gym any day. Mm. <laughs> Uh,
0: and then you also mentioned lacrosse. What about? I mean, you you were U.S. national champ in lacrosse. What is? What is that? Was that in high school?
1: No, that was in college. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and that was that was as a coach actually. So it was kind of interesting. Uh, yeah, I guess I should talk about how I got there. That was a weird scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, I hockey and lacrosse go hand in hand in Canada, right? So you know, during uh, the summers in Canada, they melt the ice. And so you play indoor box lacrosse. And so like everyone, we just transitioned from a hockey team to a lacrosse team. Mm. Um, And so I grew up, you know, started playing lacrosse when I was 10, kind of just messed around and did that forever and still loved it. Not as much as hockey, obviously, but I knew the game well. Um, And so my senior year of college, the club lacrosse team at Davis needed a coach. I had been helping out with them. for a while and just kind of jumped into the coaching role. Um, this is the women's club cross team. I should mention this is the women's club cross team, and uh, yeah, they needed a coach to help them get through their season. And so I took on that, that role uh, with my now wife, which is kind of cool. Um, congrats. Congrats on yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. So myself and, and Jacqueline, coached this team and we had a just great group of, of athletes and we ended up yeah, going all the way. We went in the ten seed, came out the one seed, which was awesome. Very cool. So yeah, US lacrosse national champs. Twenty
0: ten. That was cool. Yeah. is cool. It is cool. It's a lot of
1: fun. Ten years ago, wow. Ten years ago. Um know, makes me sound old. How does uh
0: you know would you say that your athleticism or your your propensity to do athletic things, uh, Detracted from your ability to do grad school? Did you find yourself not having a lot of time, or would you say it was something that helped your work life balance a lot?
1: Uh the answer is complicatedly both. Mm. You know, there's times that I feel like I should have not been doing so many sports, but I'm very happy with the way that my work life balance went. Um I, I think the greatest thing about sports for grad students is the fact that when you are playing your sport, whether it's intramural, competitive, you know, beer league, whatever it may be, it forces you to think about something other than science for an hour, you know, so you can kind of clear your head. You know, I I see a lot of grad students who get into this detrimental spiral of like, they do their experiments, they go home, all they think about is their experiments. They come back the next day and they're just like stuck and while this works for some people, I think it doesn't work for the majority of people, um, you need your, your alone time to kind of clear your head and refresh yourself. And so sports were that outlet for me, you know, um, four days a week I'd play for an hour or two and you're just forced to, like I said, think about sports. Cause when you're competing, if you're thinking about other things, like it's not gonna work. I mean, it, it can totally be detrimental to
0: your mental health because, I mean, I've mentioned this on podcasts podcast before, but science, a lot of the time, is just professional failure. Like, you fail constantly. You know, the experiment doesn't work or it doesn't go as you expected. And so if you're just constantly only thinking about, you know, your failures or your experiment all the time, that can kind of not be so great and certainly not great for the people around you. You know, you know your friends can kind of get sick of you sounding like a broken record constantly talking about your experiment. So I, I, I agree. It's important to have some sort of outlet that can get you out of the science realm and get you into you know something else not necessarily a healthier thought process but just something to distract you for a little bit
1: yeah absolutely and yeah professional failure is a great way to put it um i think it's really important for everyone out there to like you know structure your thought process in a way that even though your experiments may fail you have learned something in that failure you've learned what didn't work um and if you can do that, then, like, you're going to be a very successful grad student, you know? You just take that failure, make it something positive, and transition that positive into your next experiment. Um, but, yeah, definitely, it's it's mentally draining mm-hmm. to, like, take months and have stuff not work every day. Big time. Sometimes I'm like, why are they paying me to just fail yeah. over and over again? I will ask myself that every day. <laughs>
0: um, so... Uh, kind of two things. What's next for the future of, you know, this testing in your mind or, or kind of like with this coronavirus testing? Um...
1: Yeah, that's a, a very great question. Um, right now, the, the university is kind of in limbo, right? You know, we have, we're starting to implement reopening procedures, uh, but those have not been finalized by any means. You know, the California State University System The CSUs, I want to make that very clear, not the UCs. The CSUs have already said that they're canceling a majority of their fall classes and moving a lot of them online. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if the UC system followed suit, but the key to reopening any major university system is like, can we test our students? Like, can we identify hotspots of infection? Um, Can we come up with accurate transmission rate numbers and so i think for university systems to really really reopen is getting large scale testing done in a very timely manner so what does that mean for for us one i think the biggest thing is increasing the capacity to test like you know ucsb has what just shy of 30,000 students mm-hmm. you know you need to be able to do i would say accurately Those 30,000 students, I don't know, every two weeks, maybe every week if we could, Mm -hmm. but that means that you're looking at 3000 plus tests a day, um, which is crazy, right? You know, that's just a lot of tests. The obvious answer to that is robotics. Like, can we automate that? Um, because automation works, you know, 24 hours a day, Mm -hmm. you can just run these robots into the ground and like, they're not going to care. Um, so I think if we can develop some sort of system or, or architecture that allows that to happen, then we can test massly and help the university develop procedures and, and processes to getting this open. Mm. Um, I think it's doable. I think it's really doable. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of working with an engineering team or a robotics company to make sure that happens.
0: Very cool, very promising. Not not so much doom and gloom kinda of sounds. No, like.
1: I, I think I mean realistically like I don't know we've so our test like we talked about crests um we did a lot of development early but it's actually being used to test ucsb students faculty now like i mentioned we're about 200 tests a day Um, we wanted to do a pilot experiment of of 1500 people just to see like what the feasibility scale is and things like that so far we've done it all by hand um and we're sitting you know right around 900 tests right now in uh i want to say it's been about eight days worth of testing Mm. Um, because we kind of worked in this ramp up you know we did 31 day 50 100 and so on and so forth Um, anyways in those 900 tests so far we've had no positives no way yeah which is great that's great for us Um, you know it's kind of following suit with what UCSF has reported they Mm. did a similar study they did 1800 tests in a community called Bolina in uh, 1,800 tests, they saw no positives. Wow. So the university systems seem to be promising in, in their containment numbers, um, partly because their students, I'm guessing, and faculty have done pretty well mm-hmm. isolating in wherever they chose to isolate. So, yeah, I'm hoping that our we continue on this trend for our testing and, you know, things stay flat. Yeah. Because that would help the UC system massively. You know, I'm sure students want to get back to school. Definitely. Probably the first time that's ever been said, ever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know, what a weird, what a weird dynamic, like, yeah, students want to go to school and I can't wait to get back in the lab. I want to go back to work so bad, but my lab's still closed, unfortunately, for the time being. Yeah. Um, and then, kind of, what's, what's next in the future, personally, for yourself? What do you foresee yourself doing?
1: Yeah, uh, the big thing is kind of getting this postdoc going, you know, um, at the end of my PhD, I was fortunate enough to work with Angela Patanis, who's a professor in, in materials, who kind of helped get me this, po- this joint postdoc between her and Max Wilson's lab, working more on, like, biocompatible materials, um, which is a field that I find extremely fascinating. So, unfortunately, I was only in lab for about a month when this whole shutdown got hit, and we've got some really cool ideas that I think would, you know, kind of change the way that optogenetics works. So, that's the where I want to go is like actually work on postdoc projects that I yeah. was hired to do. Yeah. Um,
0: who knows when that's gonna happen? You mentioned uh, optogenetics. You wanna just talk about what that is briefly?
1: Yeah. So optogenetics is a way of controlling gene expression using light. Um, so what what people typically do is they engineer a a protein that is derived from plants into uh the genome of a host cell. Uh this way that protein then is light active. So when you shine light on it, it'll activate or deactivate a certain signaling pathway within the cell, which will allow you to either upregulate or downregulate certain genes. So you can truly investigate how a cell responds to a certain signaling pathway. Mm. Um, it's kind of changed the way that we think about studying cell signaling for a couple of reasons one it gives you acute control over a single signaling pathway two you don't have to knock out any genes like gene knockouts are kind of been the classic canonical way of doing cell signaling pathways but the problem is these signaling pathways are so intertwined that when you knock out a single gene I personally believe that there's no way to be confident that the knockout is only affecting a single pathway right people make that leap a lot in papers um, because there's no other way to think about it. Mm -hmm. But optogenetics offers you kind of a workaround for that. Um, It's really fascinating. It's really cool. I mean, I hope you get back to studying that sometime here shortly. I do too. I mean, it's, we'll see. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how long this persists.
0: Mm. Um, But, yeah, that about does it for us. I just want to say thank you again so much for coming on the show. Um, Is there anything you want to say to the fans at all before we go? Stay safe.
1: I don't know. I mean, I I want this to end as quickly as possible, and people need to do their part to make sure that that happens. Well, again, thank you so
0: much, Dr. Valwa, for the insightful discussion. I just want to take this time to thank the listeners for you know, tuning in and giving their support during the infancy of this podcast, especially as I try to get this thing off the ground. It really means a lot to have your support. So thank you so much, everybody. And, uh, you know, please reach out to me if you have any scientific topics you'd like me to discuss in the future. If you have somebody in mind who you'd like me to reach out and interview, uh, I'm really open to any suggestions as I continue uh, to roll out these episodes. And, you know, once again, thank you so much, and until next time, this is Goggles Off.